God knows what He's doing. Uh, I think Daryl pointed that out there. Uh, he put me here. I don't know why. Uh, maybe some things I need to grow on. So I get to make sermons that, and most of the time, the sermons that I give to you uh, are mainly started because there's things I need to work on, <laughs> mostly. Today is the uh, day before Pentecost, you know, and uh, that first Pentecost that the Bible records, uh, these people were to sanctify themselves, weren't they? He said, uh, three days, in three days, you know, sanctify yourself and in three days we'll meet together. Well, that's tomorrow, and God wants everybody to be there and be with Him if you go, go turn to Acts 2. Let's start there in Acts 2, verse 1. Acts chapter 2. And this is a, the first Pentecost of, of significance in the New Testament church. And as Daryl pointed out, at that point in time, when they first came together there, these people were afraid. You know, they were just a little over 50 days before this. They were witnessing to their master, their teacher, and they were disciples of Christ. Uh, He was the master, he was the teacher, and they witnessed him being betrayed, taken in, beaten, uh, his flesh ripped off his body, nailed to a post or or a tree, and die. And they knew that the the heads of the Jewish community or the Jewish religion wasn't so much all Jews there, but the Jewish religion were out to put them down. They looked for them. And so these people were afraid. But they were all in one place, it says in chapter 2, verse 1. And when the day of Pentecost, that first Pentecost of the New Testament church, fully came, they were in one accord in one place. And I look back at, at this when I read this and going over this. I thought about this little group. In 2000, we met together on the Feast of Tabernacles. It was so exciting. We were, you know, it was a new, of coming back together. It's a new calling light and, and being brought together. And everybody's enthusiastic. And then in 2002, it seemed like for a while there, 2002, 3, 4, and 5, that uh, we were still so excited. It was, we were all basically, you want to say, on the same book, on the same page, on the same line, the same verse, you know. We, we got together, we were so anxious, we put in the roads and we put in uh, lots and we started building this building and uh, we just worked together. It, everybody put their heart into it. We were all just excited. We were thrilled to be a part of what was happening. And I can see that here, this people, the, the 120 people that were gathered together there on this first Pentecost. And it says, And suddenly there came a sound from heaven as a rushing mighty wind, and it filled the whole house where they were sitting. So I could see that. We were excited. We were filled with God's Spirit to, to, to be together and to accomplish whatever it was God wanted from us. 
And there appeared unto them cloven tongues like as fire and sat upon each of them. All 120. Not all of them were speakers though. You know, there was only 12 that Christ had appointed and one of them betrayed Christ. And one of the 12 died. So he was short from that. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak with tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. I've seen in my lifetime, and it's been a short lifetime, you know, 70, almost 77 years is still pretty short. I know when you, some of the young people sitting here and they look out, that's a long time, you know. But when you look at 77 years looking back, it's a short period of time. It really is short. So in that time, I've seen a a number of times when there was so much excitement and I could see the Spirit of God directing the sermons, directing the people, and directing their hearts. And I could see people speak with fervor. And since we've been here in this new calling, like, like a new calling, I've seen God add to us tremendous blessings. And sometimes I wonder, are we coming up short somewhere? Uh, yesterday I was sitting there working on a sermon and I thought back. Um, I thought of Revelation chapter 2 and 3. And I could see this little group in one instance, one spot of chapter 2 of being Sardis. Or, uh, Sorry, Ephesus, Smyrna, and Sardis. All of it. I could see us fit every church era. Some part of it. Maybe not all together, but some part of, of the church. We are God's church. We all have a part of it. And we all have at one time or another slipped a little bit. And so when he got to Revelation chapter 3, 12, uh, 14, and goes on, I could see where we thought... We were great. We are the best. And God's saying to each one of us, Hey, you're not looking at things right. You don't have your eyes opened. Because basically you're blind and naked at times, you know. And there's things you need to do and things you need to change. So if we want to be like Acts 2, we're missing something, aren't we? Because I would dearly love to have been there, and I would love to be there in the future. Hopefully tomorrow, we're all in the same place, on the same page, on the same verse, hearing the same thing, and be filled with God's Spirit. And I hope to be there, and I want to be, and I want all of us there. But then I have to analyze my life and say, am I missing something? Am I missing what God has to offer to me? Because certainly He brought me here and He gave me that understanding. Do I see the same things you see? Are we seeing the same things? Do I see the same things God teaches from this lectern every week? Or do I find fault? And then I have to say, Nelson... If you're finding fault, are you looking in the right place? (laughs) 
and maybe I'm not. Acts chapter 4. Acts chapter 4, verse 31. And when they had prayed, so here, those individuals that were together at that time, people that loved God, people that wanted to do it, what God wanted. And when they had prayed, the place was suddenly where they were assembled together, and they were all filled with the Spirit, and they spoke the words of God with boldness. Can we... And I ask this of myself all the time. Can I speak God's word with boldness? Now, last week or the week before, you know, past couple of weeks, Daryl pointed out how back in the 70s and 80s, we were hesitant to say, we are the church of God and we're going to tell you what God wants. No, we sat up there and had to say, well, we are ambassadors of Ambassador College or ambassadors of God. Uh, We represent ambassador college. Were we bold? Were we fulfilling what was here? Did we have that much of God's Spirit that we didn't hesitate to say, this is what God says? I know I fall in that category. Well, you know, somebody come up, why are you keeping Pentecost? Or why are you keeping Sunday when you teach? You should only keep Saturday. And then you stumble and you say, well, I, 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 uh, you know, you didn't want to come out and say, because God said you keep this day. This represents God's people. But I like just about everybody else I knew were real hesitant to say there are a few people that didn't hesitate to say, this is what God says, and if you don't do it, you're going to die. Eventually, maybe not tomorrow or the next day, but you will one time, you're going to be very sorry that you didn't do it God's way, because in the future, there come a time that you will do it. I mean, it's destined to happen. And the multitude, verse 32, of them that believed were of one heart... And one soul. And I look at us today here and I say, what is our heart and soul? I mean, look at the church of God today. And I'm talking about the greater church of God. Do we have one heart, one soul? When the different groups say, if you're not in my group, you're not part of the church of God. Who are we? Who are we to determine whether you're in God's church or not? Do we have that right to look at somebody else and say, Oh, you keep the Sabbath and you keep the holy days and, and you do you, you tithe and you do all of this, but you're not in God's church because you're not with me. Well, who are we? Have we set ourselves up as, as God? Basically, what it comes down to. But these people had the same heart and soul. They believed the same thing. Neither said any of them that ought the things which they possessed of their own, but they all had all things in common. Are we helping each other to the greatest extent we can? Something to think about. I ask that question myself all the time. What do I hold back on? 
1 Corinthians chapter 1. 1 Corinthians chapter 1, begin in verse 10. Here Paul speaking to the Corinthian church. And we know he came there to correct them and encourage them and teach them and lead them in the right path. And so he speaks and says, Now I beseech you, brethren, verse 10, by the name of our Lord Emmanuel Christ, that you all speak the same thing. Am I speaking the same thing? Do I find something different that I change? Something I got in my mind that's the best of all? I'm better than anybody. Or do we speak the same thing? That there be no divisions among you. And the church of God today is divided. It is totally divided. People will not eat together. They won't talk with each other. Husbands and wives are separated because of church doctrine, of individual church doctrine. And that blows my mind because I've been to homes where uh, one member is of this organization and another one's of another and they can't, the, the wife fixes the meal, but she eats by herself and the husband eats by himself and you can't have and I've got a daughter who is in, in the Jewish religion, not in Judah, in Judaism, the Jewish religion, who can't eat from the same cup that she eats meat or drinks or puts milk in in her coffee, because I had that happen. I got a cup from the wrong cupboards. And she had to throw the cup away because I put milk in it. And you can't do that because she might put meat in it sometime. You know, it's crazy. But we have the same kind of craziness in the church. And sometime inside of each group we have some kind of crazy ideas. And if that's the case, then we're not on the same page. We're not thinking the same things. God called you and put you here for His purpose, not your purpose. We're here for God's purpose. We're here to do God's will, not our own will. So he said that there be no divisions among you, but that you be perfectly joined together in the same mind and in the same judgments. So it goes on. We've got to judge each other with the same attitude, same thoughts, same actions. All of that has to be of God. Verse 12, looking for the hastening unto the coming of the day of God. You know, Pentecost is the only day, the only holy day that can fall only on a Sunday, the first day of the week. All the rest of the holy days fall every day of the week. Now, I know that there are parts of the church that say you can never have back-to-back Sabbaths in the fall. I'd like to see that in the Scriptures, but maybe I'd change. But Pentecost is one day. Why? It represents the first fruits. And go back and go through the stories of Moses talking to Israel and how... God pointed out that they are the first fruits. Now, they gave up their opportunity because they were hard-headed and rebellious 
and wanted to change and didn't like what God had to say and, hey, I can do it better. But we don't want to be that way because this day, Pentecost, tomorrow, represents you. No one else, no other time frame except the first fruits in Pentecost. So when we come to Pentecost, think about that. You are first fruits. And the only day of all God's holy days that will fall definitely confined to the first day of the week. Because you are the first. Nevertheless, verse 13, we, according to the promises, look for a new heaven and a new earth wherein dwells righteousness. Isn't that what we're looking for? Are we not? Our hearts and minds looking at a time when Satan's going to be blown away, he's going to be put away, he's never going to be able to affect anybody, finally going to be put out, and all humanity will be given the same opportunity to learn from this book. So their books will be open. Which books? Same ones we're being judged out of today. They're all going to go through it. They're all going to learn this. Only then, you will have an opportunity to teach them. And you'll teach them in boldness and in love and in compassion. And they will all learn. And if they decide it's not what they want, they won't be. God's going to be merciful and they won't have to suffer. God will put them to sleep forever. Wherefore, beloved, verse 14, seeing that you look for such a thing, notice what he says here, be diligent that you may be found of him in peace without spot and blameless. Oh, he's given us a, an opportunity, something to think about. Am I diligent or am I haphazard? You know, we've talked about this in the church, as far as I know, for 50-some years. We've talked about being diligent, of prayer, of Bible study. We've heard from this lectern time and time again, don't let any of God's words fall to the ground. Ask yourself, you know. It's a, it's a personal thing. We can find somebody else and say, oh, there he is. There's Nelson. He's just doing his own thing. But do we say, what am I doing? Where do I stand in relationship with God? It's not whether me or you or your friends or your neighbor, your husband, your wife, your children are doing something right or wrong. It's what you're doing. It's a personal thing with God. And he says, be diligently. So, how diligent are we? That you may be found of him in peace. Boy, that's, that's a hard thing to look at. Being find ourselves in peace without spots. And it's easy to look out there and I can see each one of you and say, uh-huh, I can see where you are. You've got all these faults. You're spotted. But me, I'm so good, I have no spots. Except I'm one great big spot. That's my problem. 
And I'm not always unblameless. But here, God wants us to be spot-free and blameless. That means He can look into your life and say, you're really trying. You're putting out some effort there. You're what I want to help me in the future. Too often we, we ask God to uh, turn His face to us, don't we? God, turn your face to us. We, we want you to turn your face to us. Of course, I don't want to change my spots. I want to be a leopard and have all these spots all over and be a real roaring cat. But no. God says to us, instead of looking for God's face to turn to us, He really wants us to turn to Him. Go to Psalm 80. Psalm 80. God wants us to look to Him. God wants us to change. Psalm 80, verse 1. Give ear, O shepherd of Israel, you that lead Joseph like a flock. David's admitting that he was a shepherd and he was admitting that God leads his people. You that dwell between the cherubs shine forth. David pointing out where, where Christ was. He is there in the temple of God in heaven between the cherubims, between the angelic host, people, angels that have tremendous power. Before Ephraim and Benjamin and Manasseh, stir up your, your strength and come and save us. So we call out that, don't we? God, save us. You know, I work with the county here and I keep saying in prayer, save us. I'd like to sleep sometimes. I'd like to get rid of this county thing. Save me from this harassment. And I'm sure he's going to. But David then, after he said, save me, he said, turn us again. Oh, I mean, we've gone the wrong direction. So David understood he needed to be manipulated in another direction. So he said, turn me back toward you, O God, and cause your face to shine, and we shall be saved. So when, true, when God's face shines on us, we'll be saved. But why would God want to save us or shine his face on us if we don't want to do it his way? If we want to continually go some other direction, we want to find fault. We want to, we want to say, oh, it's a whole lot easier to be a part of this world. I think Christ made that mention, didn't he? he said, the way to eternal life is a narrow path. The way to destruction, you can stumble and trip and, you know, jump and run and you'll make it. But to go God's way, it's tough. And he does that for a purpose. He does it for a purpose. Why would God want you to live for eternity and somewhere down the line decide for yourself that uh, I don't like that what you're telling me to do. I think I'm going to try something else. No, we have a training ground. We're a human right now and God knows that he can put you to sleep and bring you back a little later. 
when, when you have a chance to see that, hey, yeah, all that happened, and, and I could have been a part of this, but now I'm someplace else. Now, we're a training ground. God wants to know, if I tell you to do something, you're not going to hesitate. Look at Abraham. He tested Abraham, didn't he? Let him get a hundred years old, gave him a son, probably was around 30 years old in that area, said, now that I gave you this son, this is the promised son, I want to know if, if I could trust you for eternity. I want you to take that promised son that I promised you and said everything's going to happen through him, take him out there and slit his throat. I thought this many times through my life in the church. Which one of my children could I take up there and lay them on a bundle of wood, have a gasoline there so I can get it started up real quick, and slit their throat and burn them up? I'd probably be extremely hesitant at that. And I think each one of us, each one of you here would be the same way. You would have a very tough time when it came to your own offspring. To look at them in the eyes and know I'm going to slice their throat. But Abraham showed his faithfulness to God. And he went the whole way to the point to bring that knife across his throat and slice his throat and bleed him out like he would an animal when God stopped him. And he knew at that point in time, whatever I tell you, Abraham, you'll do. So we're here in a training ground. He wants to know, if I say, do this, will you do it? Now, I know it's difficult. I know we hear sermons or we see things happen and we say, we challenge that because it just doesn't seem like it fits what I want to do. Maybe it is that we have this vision and it's all based on my thoughts and my actions and and we don't actually see God's vision you know God's got a vision of a family that will yield to him completely that will never go the way of Hillel Hillel had everything the greatest of God's creation but he challenged God And he decided, I'm better than God. So he didn't, he lost perspective of what God had in mind. And that's something we cannot do. We cannot afford to lose God's vision and substitute our vision for God's vision. But it's easy to do that because we're human. And we read the scriptures and maybe we. Say, but doesn't sound good. And there and and I've seen it, I've been there. You can't believe this guy because um, he really wasn't around when Christ was there. He's only reading he's only writing what he was told had happened and so but he we don't look at that fact that here this man that wrote some of the scriptures uh, got all the facts together and then put them down in order. But he wasn't there, so we can't believe him. And some of the Protestants say that you can't believe of another person because his his scriptures are just straw. They don't mean nothing. What? 
Did we not hear for years we've been hearing God purifies His Word seven times? And this is pure. This is, and have we not read John chapter 17 where it says God's Word is truth? So what is truth? God's Word. What is God's Word? Everything that He put here for us. Years and years ago, I remember Mr. Armstrong saying, everything that I need, that I need to understand and do, is easy to understand because it's here. And most of the things that are difficult generally have to do with things beyond the future, beyond our becoming part of the God family. So they're a little harder to understand. But everything else, it's for us. It's easy to understand that. So are we diligently in these things? And God says, turn me. I need to turn around. I'm going the wrong direction. So he said there in verse 3 of uh, Psalm 80, Oh God, and cause your face to shine in me, and we'll be saved. Oh Lord, God of hosts, how long will you be angry against the prayers of your people? Is God angry at our prayers? Does God hear and answer every prayer we have? Or is or what we saying in a prayer angering God? Does it affect God that much that it just says, I can't listen because they're selfish, self-centered? Was it Revelation chapter 3, verse 14? The Laodiceans who say, Hey, I am good. It's these other people. And yet, he ends up there on Laodicea and saying, I'm standing at the door knocking. I want to be with you. I want to turn you around. But you're not opening the door. You won't listen. So is God angered at your prayers? Does God... Look down and say, oh, there's that guy again. There's old Nelson. He's just so selfish, self-centered. Why should I listen to him? Verse 5, you feed them with bread of tears. So we have problems because God wants us to turn to him. So he feeds us with tears and gives us the tears to drink of great measure. You that make strife unto the, your neighbor and your enemies laugh among themselves. So here we cause difficulty internally. You know, and Christ said that too about internally things, remember? Uh, they accused him of, of healing by Beelzebub. And Christ said, if you're doing that, are you not fighting internally? You never prosper if, if you've got internal fighting. What's happening in our nation today? They are constantly, those in leadership positions, are constantly turning people against each other. Because they want to bring, bring the nation down. Happened in the church. But God orchestrated that, didn't He? He brought the confusion in the church and what happened. We, uh, I can look around this audience, I see many people here who were around at the time when the church came apart and what happened. We were internally fighting. 
And there's only one way to go. That's downhill. The nation's going to go that way. So our enemies inside or outside the church laugh at us because we are not on the same page. We're not seeing eye to eye. And they laugh at us. Again, David points out there in verse 7, Turn us again. Turn us again. David understood. Turn us again, O God of hosts, and cause your face to shine on us and we'll be saved. Again, he says that. We, we need to turn around so that we can be saved. Verse 19 again, he says, Turn us again, O Lord of hosts. Cause your face to shine on us. David emphasized this three times here in this one psalm. We need to turn around to see where we stand in relationship to God. We want our our prayers to be heard. We want us to be a part of His family. He wants us to be the first fruits. God is pulling for you. He's given us everything we need. But we find ourselves looking for other things. He's pulling for us. Jeremiah, after going through all that they went through, and Jeremiah writing there in Lamentations chapter 5, verse 21, says, Turn us, turn you us unto you, O Lord, and we shall be turned. So he was begging God to tur- help us to turn around. And if we will listen, we will be turned and renew the days of old. David wanted us, or Jeremiah wanted us, to go God's way. God wants us to be sanctified. One of the things that God told the people of Israel just prior to the Pentecost that they were going to go into after they had gone through 400 years of slavery. They witnessed the destruction of a nation. They witnessed the whole army wiped out in front of them. He brought them to the place and they had problems. So one of the things God told Moses was to sanctify the people. We're going to Pentecost tomorrow. Are we sanctified? Are we clean and righteous to be the first fruits? You know, he set the whole thing up to emphasize everything that God gave to us helps us to look for what God is doing. Look at his vision. He wants a bride for his son. The bride is to be first fruits. And so he gave us all this effort on first fruits. You go out there and pick first fruits. Why? Why do we spend time picking first fruits? To emphasize in our minds that there are a group of people that are going to be first fruits. And if we understand that there are going to be a group of people being first fruits, maybe those first fruits will try to be the best. They'll work at being the best. It's not just you go out there and pick the first apple and it might have a worm in it or a rotten spot on it. No, you pick first fruits. First fruits have to be the best. Have to be the best. 
And that's what God's looking for. He wants the best. And it's not going to be a billion people. It's going to be 144,000. It's going to be a special group of people. People that are willing to turn their face to God so then He can turn His face to them. He's looking for those people at Acts 2 who were in the same place, on the same page, on the same book, who were willing to say, I'm going to do it God's way. I want what God wants. I have the same vision that God has. So he wants us to be sanctified. Second Peter chapter two or chapter one rather. Second Peter chapter one verse one. Simon Peter, a servant of the and an apostle of Emmanuel, to them that have obtained the like precious faith with us through the righteousness of God and our Savior, Emmanuel. So here, Peter says, he wants us to be together, precious faith, and trusting in righteousness to God. And so he says in verse 2, Grace and peace be multiplied unto you through the knowledge of God and of Emmanuel, our Lord. How do we obtain grace? How do we get peace? Because this is part of sanctification. Being grace is favor and kindness and friendship and God's forgiving mercy. That's what grace is. It's a free gift that God gives to you. Freely given to you by God as miracles of, and prophecies and tongues and teaching. You know, God is in this. That's what grace is. It is from God. And He gives that to you individually because He wants you to be sanctified. Peace. You know, peace, you ever give it a thought of what it means to have peace? Soundness, being sound in mind and thoughts and actions, and well-being of the total person. One instance of that is a memory scripture. Psalm 119, 165 says, Great peace have they that love God's law, and nothing will offend you. Am I offended? Is it easy to be offended? And I have to say, how much do I love God's law? What, what is in it for me? Great peace. Can you think of that? How great it is to be at peace if you really, truly love God's law. Love for God and love for your fellow man. And it's just as important to love people, brothers and sisters, especially in the church, like Paul said, as it is to love God. Because Christ emphasized that fact in Matthew 25 when he said, 
the way you treat each other is the way you treat me. So if we treat each other rotten or badly or however it is, then how can we say we love God? Because we're treating God the same way. And if we say we love God and we do anything and everything His way, how can we treat somebody else wrong? Because it, it doesn't work. They're both important aspects. Peace can also be security, contentment, prosperity, and absence of war. Absence of war not meaning that you're going to go out to fight, but battling internally inside the church, battling inside each organization, battling with your neighbors. That's war. And you can't have peace if that's part of what you're doing. It can't be. It's it's one of those things. Peace is a lot to work and think about. It's tough. It's hard. It's hard to apply that. You know, Psalm 119, 165, great peace. Do I really, really love God's law? Peace also is those that trust God, trust Him, that He is in charge and He is leading you in the right direction. In 2 Peter 1, verse 3, now, According as His divine power has given unto us all things that pertain to this life, godliness, through the knowledge of Him that has called us into the glory and virtue. It is God's power, God's Spirit that gives us this godliness. And godliness is something that we need to obtain. If we're going to have peace, we've got to have godliness. If we're going to have Love, we're going to have to have godliness. If we want to be a part of the first fruits, we're going to have to be godly. What is godliness? Well, first, it's uprightness. It's uprightness. How you deal with other people. Uprightness is integrity. It's who you are. If people can look at you and say, This person is this way. His integrity is, if he says to you he will do this, he will do it, or she will do it. They don't bounce around. So godliness is uprightness, which is integrity. It's absence to moral and ethical principles Soundness of uh, moral and character and honesty. That's what integrity is. And that's what godliness is. Godliness is also truth. You know, Christ says in John 17, verse 17, God's word is truth. Do we live by every word that comes from God? I was studying some time back on the part that Christ said that we're all tried the same way he was. He was tried in three basic points. Food, trust, and loyalty. 
Matthew chapter 4. We're tried the same way. It might look different. Lust of the eyes, lust of the flesh, and the pride of life. I mean, we look at it a little bit different each time we do something, but it's all the same. It's trust for this, keep this physical life going, or which is, you know, our physical life is only temporary, or to have eternal life, which is God's Word. It's um, trust. Trust God in everything. You know, Satan said to Christ, throw yourself down. You know, God says you can protect you, you won't let you fall. And Christ's answer was, why tempt Christ? Why tempt God? Why tempt Him? Do we tempt Him? You know, we want to be godly and have a godly attitude and be upright. You can't tempt God. And then loyalty. For Christ it was, come and follow me, Satan said, and I'll give you the world. And Christ said, what good would it be to have the world and die? You don't put something in front of God, the first commandment and the last commandment and everyone in between. Can't... God has to be first and foremost. That's godliness. Without blemish. This is what godliness is. Not having blemishes. Not having spots or wrinkles. Complete. Completely doing it God's way. Full. Full of God's Spirit. Perfect. Sincere. Sound. Without spot undefiled you know you can be defiled you don't want to be defiled do you you want to be undefiled upright and whole so part of godliness and part of turning us to God to turn me to God you have to say I want to be part of what God I want to do it God's way that means I have to be godly I have to be upright. Romans chapter 8. Romans chapter 8. I want to do it God's way. I want you to do it God's way. I want you to be the first fruits. I want each and every one of us tomorrow and every Pentecost be on the same book, the same page, same verse, same words I want us there I want to be a part of that I want each one of us I would hope that if we were all like they were in Pentecost it would be so spectacular to be in one place and I think that we have chosen because I proved it scripturally that this is the true Pentecost tomorrow I don't turn my mind back to us well maybe maybe not no Tomorrow is Pentecost. And I would be so thrilled to see us in the same place, in the same page, and see spectacular things happen. I long for that time. I really do. Romans 8. Moreover, whom he did predestinate, 
you're predestinated to be that way. He called you. He had purpose putting you here. Them he also called. And whom he called, them he also justified. So God's not slacking what he's doing. He's justifying you. We can't justify ourselves, but God can. He has that power. And then he also glorified. Can you imagine when we're given the opportunity and we become one place and one mind and all these spectacular things happen and we're able to be there and we're finally brought into to the kingdom of God. We will be glorified. We will then be God like Christ is God. Not with the same position. The Father will always be the Father. Christ will always be the husband. And the first fruits will always be the first fruits, the wife, the bride of Christ. And then there will be children. But they won't have your position. You'll still be kings and priests and heads of jobs that Christ said, I'm going to my father's house with many a mansion with many rooms. And he's cut it for you. What shall we then say to these things? If God be for us, who can be against us? The only one that can be against you is Satan and yourself. There are only two. Satan and yourself. And you have to be willing to put self down and let Christ put Satan out. You know, even the angels would not put Satan down. They just said, Christ, take care of it. We've got to do that too. Let Christ take care of it. Work on yourself. Ask God, turn me back to the right direction because I'm going the wrong way. Verse 33. Who shall lay anything to the charge of God's elect? It's God that justifies Who's going to put charges against you? You're going to fight God? God justifies. Who is he that condemns? Do we have the right to condemn somebody else? People have done it. I mean, I've heard it. You know, they, they have their thing. Go to the grave. Of course, they don't say grave. They say go to hell. You know, <laughs> Because that's where they're going. It's the bottomless pit. The lake of fire. That's what they're saying to somebody. If they tell them to get out of here, go to the lake of fire. Are we condemning somebody to the lake of fire because they don't see what I see? Or my vision, and it might not be God's vision, but my vision is this, and they don't see the way I see it, so they can go to the lake of fire until they make a change. And they're not going to change in a lake of fire. So who is it that can condemn? It is Christ that died, yet rather is raised again, who is even at the right hand of God, who makes intercession for us. Who can separate us from the love of Christ? What man, woman, our angel can separate us from that power and that love that Christ has for us. It was Christ that was 
crucified just like the uh, head of the Jewish religion Judaism said when Christ was there it's good that one die and the rest of us live well you're right I mean he was right in his saying he didn't really know what he was saying because he really didn't know God he had the right statement it took one righteous person to save everybody else one person and it was Christ shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or perils or the sword is that going to, any of that going to separate you from God look at Stephen they stoned him to death did he condemn them no he just said I look up at heaven I see heaven open and I see Christ at the Father's throne forgive these people because they really don't know what they're doing and you and I know what's going on we've had the opportunity we've been called and separated and we're being taught on the Sabbath how to live godly as it is written for your sake we are killed all day long you don't have to die every day but you're killing yourself when you're separating yourself from the world We've been told that. We need to separate. We came here to the far west desert, no trees to speak of. Rain, we get a lot of rain. We get a six inch rain now and then, sometimes a four inch rain. That, that is six inch, uh, one drop every six inches or one drop every four inches. And once in a while, we might get an eighth of an inch of water ran on the ground. But this is rare. But God said to you, come to the desert. I want to teach you. And he has done this throughout society, throughout history. He's always brought those that he specifically wants to work with to the desert. He did it to Israel. He's doing it to us. He did it to Elijah. He's done it to so many other people throughout history. He's always brought them out to a place where you have to say, you know, the only way we're going to make it is with God's help. So he brought us here for that purpose. As is written, for your sake we're killed all the day long, and we are accounted as sheep to the slaughter. No, in all these things we are we are more than conquerors through him that loved us. We are going to conquer if we have the same vision and we're in the same place on the same page. In Timothy chapter 4 verse 8 says, For the bodily exercise profits little, but godliness profits unto all things, having promise of the life that that now is and that which is to come. Bodily exercise only makes you strong for a while. But I know, as you get older, you get weaker. And you can exercise, but you get tired of exercising. But godliness 
makes you strong. Godliness keeps you in the right path. And godliness prospers to the world tomorrow. The opportunity to become the bride of Christ, to be kings and priests in the world tomorrow. Psalm 15, verse 2. He that walks uprightly and works righteousness and speaks the truth in his heart. That's part of godliness. Walking and talking. You know, I've said it more than once and Daryl points that out and Terry points that out and Gordon's pointed it out. You have to not only talk the talk, but you've got to walk the walk. You've got to put more into it. You can't just say, I sit in the chair on the Sabbath, or I, in this group, I'm part of this group, and I do what I can because I do what they tell me to do. No, you have to walk the walk. You can't only think it, you have to walk it. Stephen walked it. Abraham walked it. David walked it. Paul walked it. Peter, James, and John walked it. Are we going to walk that walk? It's important, brethren, that if we're going to be godly, we've got to walk the walk. So godliness, then, is to be devout. Devout, rather. Be devout. One that you put your heart into it. You know, devotion is not an activity It's an attitude toward God. It's an attitude toward God. That attitude is fear of God, love of God, and the desire to be God. If you're going to be devout, that's what you've got to have. It's a God-word attitude. It's, I want to be God. I want to be the bride. So I want us to be tomorrow here in one place with the same mind and the same attitude and I want to see something spectacular happen. But it's up to you. It all depends on you. It's not Daryl that's going to do it. It's not Terry who's going to speak tomorrow that's going to do it. They might be on the same page. They might be just together and really in, into it with God and you might be someplace else. You might have your own vision and not God's vision. And we've got to get off of our own kick and our own attitudes and start looking for what God wants. Godliness is truth. Godliness is Second Peter three eleven or three sixteen, as also in all his epistles, speaking to them of these things, in which are some things hard to be understood, which they that are unlearned and unstable wrestle, as they do all the other scriptures unto their own destruction. We cannot wrestle with God's Word. 
We cannot have our own ideas and our own attitudes. We've got to be on the same line of Christ. God put you here. You didn't make yourself come here. God brought you here for a purpose. Don't fight Christ. You therefore, beloved, seeing that you know these things before, beware lest you also, being led away with the air of the wicked, fall into your own steadfastness. But grow in grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior Emmanuel, to be to him be glory both now and forever. It all is about God. It's not about me. It's not about Daryl. It's not about this little organization. It's about God and God's thoughts and God's action and where God is going and we've got to get back to that point to cry out to God daily say turn me back to where you want me to be help me to put my own rotten attitudes and my thoughts and my actions and my visions aside and start looking to your vision that vision that godliness is captured in Galatians 5, verse 22. It says, this is what God is. This is God's Spirit. What part of that do you fall short on? Which one of those points that God brings out said, this is what God is. We want to be godly. We have to be godly. We must be godly. And we must start doing things God's way. We are told in Isaiah that the remnant and the leadership will be on the same page. They will see eye to eye. Do you see eye to eye with Christ? Do you see, if you say yes, then we must look to where God is leading, who God is using to lead us, and see eye to eye, and walk, and talk, and live that way of life. Get the vision that God has, not your own.